the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking back a decade at the night of the bank guarantee in Ireland. On September 29th, 2008, with global financial markets in crisis, the government here took the momentous decision to put in place a €440 billion euro blanket bank guarantee. There were six Irish banks at the time, and following a night of long deliberations in government buildings, then Taoiseach Brian Cowan pressed the button on a guarantee that he hoped would save AIB, Anglo-Irish Bank, Bank of Ireland, EBS, Irish Life and Permanent and Irish Nationwide. Later on, you'll hear some audio from some of the key players on the night from testimony they gave to the Oireachtas Banking Inquiry in 2015. But I was joined in studio by Simon Carswell of the Irish Times to relive some of the key moments of that fateful night. Simon, thank you for joining us. Um, Now, I mentioned in the intro that it was a momentous decision, and indeed it was. You were finance correspondent of the Irish Times uh, at that time. You were right in the thick of it as it were, uh, quite incredible uh, the speed at which everything moved. And I, I suppose maybe let's just take a, a step back because that month, pretty much every day that month, something happened in the global financial sector which gave uh, cause for concern. And the big one, I guess, was right in the slap bang in the middle of the month when Lehman Brothers uh, effectively collapsed in the United States. It was, it was sort of let go. Brought down by bad mortgage investments, Lehman, which has 25,000 employees, will be liquidated. Yeah, you can trace the crisis back to that moment in the middle of September 2008. As soon as Lehman's was allowed to fail, uh, it was chaos in the financial markets. Mm. You had uh, financial institutions dropping almost on a daily basis for the remainder of the month. You had governments stepping in either to provide emergency liquidity or, or pumping capital in. Or you had bigger institutions taking over smaller ones. Or in the case of the US, you had Wall Street firms, which were specifically investment banks, being taken over by run-of-the-mill retail banks, some of the largest banks in the state. So it was a frenetic time. It was watching the markets very closely to see what stock prices were doing. And that was really our proxy to watch just at the level of the stress that was in the market at that time. Specifically for Ireland, in the period after Lehman Brothers, we now know Anglo lost in the order of about $5 billion in the week after Lehman's collapse. And it lost billions more in the run-up to that critical day for Anglo-Irish Bank, uh, Monday the 29th of September 2008. So when did you find out about this? Were you still in the scratcher at that stage? Or? Uh, I was woken up by a phone call from News Talk Radio by a researcher, a young guy. He said, we just got this email in and I've basically no idea what it means. Can you explain it to us? Um, and when he read it out, I went, this is huge. Uh, we knew the night before something big was happening. We were working late and we picked up, there was a wind of something big happening. We didn't know what it was. But uh, John McManus, who was business editor at the time, heard from a contact that there was something systemic being planned. I think we got that into the second or third paragraph of the story. And that pointed to there's some big decision being made, but clearly no decision had been made by the time our paper had gone to print. So just take us through the... The, the rationale for the government's decision to bring uh, a lot of movers and shakers in the Irish financial sector and to bring them all together on, on that fateful night in government buildings and eventually took the momentous decision to, for this blanket bank guarantee for two years, which effectively put us on the hook potentially for €440 billion euros 
worth of uh, liabilities. Yeah, it's important to go back and look at specifically what happened on that day because that was really driving the thinking of, of the government leaders and the officials around them on that day. There were a series of institutions that had gone. Bradford and Bingley in the UK had sought support, Hypo Real Estate in Germany, Gleitner in Iceland, Fortis in Belgium. And you had this massive uh, political decision about to be made in the US Congress, the Troubled Assets uh, Recovery Programme, the TARP programme, which they were planning to basically take the worst assets out of the bank. So all of this was happening on an hourly basis. And specific to the Irish sector, we know now um, that there was a, a frenzy of activity going on at the time. You had the central bank saying to Bank of Ireland, would they consider taking over Irish life from permanent? A, a big bank taking over a smaller bank. Uh, you had um, Anglo-Irish Bank recognising that they were in serious difficulty. We know now that they had about two billion worth of uh, maturities coming up on their funding. So in other words, deposits or wholesale deposits to repay on that Tuesday the next day and they only had about a billion euro. So they they could see that coming. They could see the cliff edge approaching. And so uh, in in the background, we had uh, some really critical decisions that were being made by Anglo-Irish Bank. You had the chairman, Sean Fitzpatrick, mm-hmm. and David Drum, the chief executive, initially going up and trying to impress upon Alan Gray, who was an independent economist, also happened to be on the board of the central bank. They were trying to say to him what trouble they were in. I did not invite them to come. They came. I believe they understood that the bank would not open the next day because... And the reason they did that was they had no faith in the central bank at that point that they were in a position to help and the central bank was the lender of last resort. So there's this kind of panic meetings. And then you had uh, Sean Fitzpatrick uh, and David Drum turn then to Bank of Ireland. They requested a meeting with the chief executive, Brian Goggin. They were brought up uh, through the underground car park so they wouldn't be seen. They were brought up back up through a, um, a service elevator so they wouldn't be seen by other bank uh, by other bank staff or by Bank of Ireland staff. So it was all hush-hush, trying to keep everything under wraps. And Bank of Ireland heard them out. It was a polite meeting. It was a courteous meeting. And they basically said, sorry, we can't help you. And we also know now that when that didn't work, Sean Fitzpatrick and David Drum also put out the feelers with AIB. Sean Fitzpatrick called Dermot Gleeson to see if AIB would be interested in taking uh, Anglo-Irish Bank over. And Dermot Gleeson didn't even entertain the call. So Mm. you had this really countdown to this critical moment. Anglo doing their own thing, trying to protect themselves for the next day and the central bank was made clear there was a call around five o'clock between the central bank and Anglo's treasury department pointing out that this two billion uh, euro was due the next day and they only had a billion so they were facing default the next day and closure. Possibly the best decision uh, the Bank of Ireland ever made in its corporate history (laughs) not to take over Anglo-Irish Bank uh, as we now well know. Maybe you could just take us through the cast of characters if you like who were there in the building. Uh, to make that fateful decision? Well, the person chairing the meeting was Taoiseach, then Taoiseach Brian Cowan. From the beginning of the meeting, those in attendance were myself, the Minister of Finance, Brian Lennon. He sat TD, at the head of what is a shield-shaped table, actually, the in the Taoiseach's private meeting room, just off his office on the first floor of government buildings. Um, sitting next to him would have been Finance Minister Brian Lennon, Governor of the Central Bank, John Hurley, David Doyle, Secretary General of the Department of Finance, a number of other Department of Finance officials, including Second Secretary Kevin Cardiff. You had Secretary of the Government, Dermot McCarthy, and you had a couple of outsiders 
outside advisors too. You had Eugene McCaig, who was, an, uh, who was a lawyer with lawyer. Arthur Cox. You had uh, Porika Reardon, who was a, another lawyer with Arthur Cox, who were legal advisors at the Department of Finance. You had the Attorney General, Paul Galler. And of course, on the Central Bank and financial regulatory end, you had Tony Grimes, who's Director General of the Central Bank. Pat Neary, who was Chief Executive of the Regulator. And in and around, outside the room, you had Brendan McDonough, you had other officials from the NTMA and a number of advisors to the Taoiseach and to Brian Lennon as well. Brendan McDonough was before the inquiry. Brendan McDonough now, of course, is Chief Executive of NAMA, but at the time uh, he was a senior executive uh, within the NTMA, uh, which manages Ireland's uh, national debt. And he was in government buildings on that fateful night. I think Michael Summers, who was head of the NTMA at the time, if my memory uh, serves me, he was out of the country. So Brendan McDonough was sent uh, to represent the NTMA. We might just take a listen to his sense of what was going on that night. I mean, we sat there, I, I described it, that there was a portable TV in the corner and the Dow Jones was was rapidly going downhill and TARP was being, was being rejected in, in, in the US. And it was a busy building on the night, but what was really interesting is some of the officials, very close to Brian Cowan and, and um, in government buildings, didn't actually know what was going on until they saw for themselves people coming in and out. So there was, it was all under wraps. There was real concern that news would leak out before markets closed in the US, which is 4 o'clock, 9 o'clock Irish time. Before Monday, the opinion was that Anglo would have sufficient funds during the course of that week. This was now not going to happen. The issue was going to have to be addressed immediately. They realised they had a big problem with Anglo the next day in around between 5 and 6pm. And it was kind of late afternoon that they decided they had to call a meeting. So they all started convening between 6 and 7pm. And then the banks themselves had, independently of the central bank, they had, because they were alarmed at the approach made by Anglo, they were concerned that maybe the central bank uh, wasn't aware of just how serious the situation was. We had an earlier meeting in the day that had been pre-scheduled long before all of the events of the day between Richard Burrows, the Governor of the, Cent- of the Bank of Ireland, and the Governor of the Central Bank, John Hurley. When the Governor of the Bank of Ireland returned from that meeting, he informed me that he had advised the Governor of the Central Bank of our meeting earlier that afternoon with the Chairman and Chief Executive of Anglo and brought to the attention of the Governor of Central Bank that Anglo was going to default the following day on a liability that was maturing. And uh, Richard Burroughs got quite a shock when he said, um, you know, uh, do, you, do you know what Anglo has just done here? Um, we really need your assistance. You're the lender of last resort. And John Hurley's response was, um, take it to government. Richard Burroughs um, advised me that the Governor of the Central Bank informed him that there was little he could do. That's what prompted Bank of Ireland to contact through their own people, government um, and the office of the Taoiseach and say, well, we want a meeting with the Taoiseach. And that's when a- a Bank of Ireland and AIB coordinated their approach and sent in their chairman and chief executives into, the, into government buildings. And they arrived around 9.30 that night. But interestingly, there was nobody there from Anglo, nobody there from Irish Nationwide, uh, which were the two institutions that were of most concern in the Irish system at that time. And I think I'm right in saying nobody there from Irish Life in Permanent. Yeah, and I think that speaks volumes about just what the issue was, um, that there was a sense that maybe the regulator was out of touch and that the, 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 the full extent of the problems, uh, certainly amongst the banks and the two leading banks, weren't being felt that the regulator and the officials weren't recognising the extent of the problems and that they, um, they needed to go in and impress upon them because they were the two biggest banks in the system. It's hard to imagine that they were so out of touch. I mean, we had the St. Patrick's Day massacre uh, earlier this year uh, of Anglo share price. Um, we had when Layman's collapsed, as you mentioned, there was a flight of capital from uh, from Anglo. 
Uh, we had the NTMA had made it very clear to the government, to the Department of Finance. We noticed from the Oireachtas Bank of Inquiry that if they were to lend any or provide any support uh, to Anglo, they would have to have um, basically a government decision on a piece of paper. They wanted somebody else to take responsibility for this. They didn't want to do it. They had raised some red flags uh, about Anglo's funding position. There were lots of warning bells uh, going off at this stage. I mean, how could it have come as a surprise? Well, I think that it probably didn't come as a surprise it was deteriorating to the point, but that there's just there's a sense of inaction, the sense of paralysis at the crisis, the sense that, you know, we run out of road from a regulatory point of view. There's nothing more we can do. The very fact that Anglo felt that they had to go about and really come up with their own solution on the day shows that speaks volumes about just how, what confidence Anglo had in the system and in the central bank and the financial regulator to fix things. The meeting began around 6.15, 6.30, and as I was chairing the meeting, I didn't take any notes myself. As the meetings began, the seriousness of the discussion became clear very quickly. There was a number of options on the table. There were the kind of doomsday scenario, which was liquidation, just letting Anglo fail, do nothing. Um, subsequently, we, the banking inquiry heard evidence from lots and lots of people that that was really, felt that wasn't even considered on the night. Allowing Anglo to fail was simply not an option on the night. It would have implications for the whole system. The costs involved in terms of causing a run on other banks as well, would put the whole payment system at risk and cause irreparable damage to the economy as a result of a banking meltdown. It would, in Governor Hurley's words, quote, set set the the country country back back 25 25 years, years. John Hurley, the Governor's Central Bank, said, unquote, as he put it. Really, that was not an option because of the risk. And, you know, we had seen at that point what had happened with Lehman Brothers. Just a contagion, potential contagion. The contagion is huge. You really can't do that. Um, And that was the feeling at at the time because we would have an Irish Lehman's if that was the case. The other option was nationalisation and there had been draft legislation been cooked up over the previous months that if a bank did find itself in difficulty that they would have on the shelf some draft legislation ready to go that they would be able to nationalise a financial institution. So that was another option. There was an option of um, ELA funding, which is um, exceptional liquidity assistance or became known um, and perhaps better known as emergency lending. Uh, That was an option. They could have got more money, but that would have just tided them over. So the idea of a guarantee had been floated in the weeks before and more specifically in a series of options that had been laid out by investment bankers that they'd hired as advisors in Merrill Lynch. They'd set out uh, the possibility of a blanket guarantee, a system-wide guarantee for the domestic banking sector that would effectively put the sovereign stamp around the banks and that the strength of the sovereign's capacity to borrow would basically be behind the banks and that they could then go back into the And market. as a sovereign at the time, we had a very good rating, hadn't we, with the market? We had a very strong rating. We had the best rating, with AAA from the credit rate agency. So it was strong at that point. However, there was a warning made in the con side of the pros and cons list that Merrill Lynch had drafted. This would have an effect. You're effectively putting behind a 500 billion odd balance sheet, banking balance sheet behind the state. The guarantee that they eventually went with in the end was 10 times the national debt. So that's a huge undertaking. But it does... uh, It does suggest that on the night, I think, that they felt that it would never be called. The Minister of Finance contributed to the meeting at this point and agreed with the analysis and the up-to-date position given by the Governor. He indicated that he felt part of the solution would be the nationalisation of Anglo-Irish Bank. I did not think that nationalisation should be a first course of action, and I said so. As I said, my first thoughts in assessing the situation that had been outlined was that if 
I did not fi- that I did not find the nationalisation option attractive as a first response. There's a lot of different options on the night. Do you go for a six bank guarantee, the whole system, the whole domestic system, or do you go for a four bank guarantee? And that's certainly what AIB and Bank of Ireland, particularly AIB, argued on the night when they did eventually make their presentation to government to these officials uh, close to midnight in government buildings. They said you need to take out Anglo and Irish nationwide. They're regarded as the really the weakest links in the system and if you take them out and give us a guarantee the other four institutions that will draw a line around what's thought to be the worst part of the system and that will send a message to the market that the, you've taken out the, the worst part or the, the, the most rotten part of the banking system and the rest is fine. The concern that Brian Cowan had and Ka- Brian Cowan as chair of the meeting as Taoiseach took a very strong view uh, that they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't nationalise. He did not want to nationalise Anglo. And his feeling was, as he said to the banking inquiry, that you take on open-ended liabilities. You take on all the assets and liabilities of the bank onto the state's books. And he thought, well, a much better option is this guarantee. Yes, it's a big guarantee, but it's time limited. We'll only have it for a two-year period. And that really came down to this crunch meeting at one point before the bankers arrived in government buildings. It was very much going towards a blanket guarantee at that stage. They were still ruminating and deliberating over whether it was the right choice or not, but they were very much leaning that way. The Central Bank of Financial Regulator seemed to be leaning that way from the outset of the meeting. There were a number of um, figures in the meeting who didn't like that idea. Kevin Cardiff was the most notable one, the second secretary at the Department of Finance. He felt that they should nationalise Anglo and provide a soft guarantee for the other institutions or a political guarantee, a statement of support. But Brian Cowan came back and thought that, well, this is a, we've one shot to get this right. The market is in a frenzy. International markets are really concerned about what are the next financial institutions that will go. So if you think about what we were saying earlier about there was institution after institution mm. going. So his feeling was, well, if we have to nationalise an institution, the market will immediately go to, well, what's the next bank you're nationalising? And you do get the sense of the fear of the domino effect. And it was very real at that time because it was actually happening across Europe. That view wasn't shared by everyone. The NTMA felt that Anglo and Irish Nationwide should be nationalised um, like Kevin Cardiff and indeed Brian Lenehan felt that uh, Anglo should be nationalised. Mr Finance and I weighed up options ourselves in my personal office as to where we were at that stage. The key meeting that took place, the only two politicians in the room who ultimately it was their decision, this was a political decision by two government officials and they had a private meeting uh, in Brian Cowan's office where they deliberated. We reviewed the discussions from the meeting thus far and he was minded to still go the nationalisation route for Anglo and guarantee the rest of them. Now, subsequently, um, Patrick Honan, who, who was uh, succeeded John Hurley as governor, governor of the Central Bank, he said that Brian Lenehan told him that he was overruled on the night by Brian Cowan. You've been accused of overruling Brian, uh, Brian Lenehan on the night of the guarantee. What do you say to the accusations that you overruled Brian Lenehan on the night of the guarantee and that Brian Lenehan informed the governor of that? Yeah, I don't think it's an accusation. I think it's if, if Professor Honan says that Brian said that characterised in that way to him, at some time later, maybe a good time later, but I'm not going to question what Professor Honan said. If, that's, if he said Brian said that to him, I accept that's what he said to him. But I've, ex- I've explained in my statement the context of that when I was there. It wasn't a question of me dictating, overruling or anything. We were two of us were trying to grapple with a very serious problem. It wasn't a case of there being an adversarial meeting or confrontational meeting. This was a decision, this was a call, it was a judgment call, and his feeling was, as I've mm. outlined, the concerns he had about nationalisation versus the guarantee. So very much at that point, it was, it was leaning towards this blanket guarantee. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll have some more of the key moments of that fateful night of the bank guarantee in September 2008. Back in a few moments. 
Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Uh, welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. I'm joined in studio by Simon Carswell of the Irish Times. He was finance correspondent for this newspaper back in 2008 when the government took the decision to issue a blanket bank guarantee on the night of September 29th, 2008. And we heard already from Simon about some of those key moments. We're going to hear a little bit more. Simon, one of the key decisions that had to be made on the night was whether these banks just simply had a liquidity problem, a temporary funding problem, essentially, and they just needed to get over a hump, or whether some of them, or all of them, were insolvent. Well, this whole meeting was weighted towards considering a liquidity crisis. Mm. None of the parties involved on the night really thought very deeply or at all that there were solvency issues at the banks, that there were problems with the loans that the banks had written, particularly the loans into the property market. And all the evidence that we heard at the banking inquiry was largely around that stressing that fact that they didn't think there was a solvency issue. We heard from the Taoiseach Brian Cowan. He didn't believe there was one. Uh, we, we heard uh, from the regulators themselves. Based on all of those sources, there was no evidence that there was um, a solvency issue in any of the institutions on the night of the guarantee. They all made the point that the bank's capital ratios were, were not in any difficulty. They were happy with what they were seeing. Uh, now, that wasn't a universal view now, and in the benefit of hindsight, we know that they should have jumped to those scenarios and should have considered those because they were standing behind the banking system or putting the taxpayer behind the banking system without actually knowing what was going on in the banks. Now, at that time, very little work had been done to try and figure out what exactly uh, was the state of play in the banks. You had PricewaterhouseCoopers had gone in and assessed the loan books, but Brian Cowan himself made the point that that analysis was hopelessly optimistic. Uh, so that incredible that on s- for such a major decision, such a major decision for the history of the state and one that put, you know, potentially the liability of all these banks on the backs of taxpayers, that so little preparation was put into considering this major question about whether the banks were insolvent or just simply had a liquidity crisis. The view was that the banks in Ireland were solvent but illiquid to varying degrees depending on the institution and the best of them had at most only a few weeks left assuming the deposit outflow rates did not accelerate. That to me is the biggest failure on the night. There was no recognition of the unknown unknowns, if I could use that term. They didn't actually think that. They thought this is purely a one-dimensional crisis. It's not two-dimensional. It does not involve uh, the health of the banks. This is an international crisis sweeping through Ireland and Irish banks are caught up in it. When in fact, if they're making a decision of this nature, even as time-limited as it was for two years, they should have gone in and thought, we need to figure out exactly what is going on in these banks. And the other issue is that throughout 2008, If you were following any kind of international analysis or market analysis, concerns were raised about the exposure of the Irish banks to the property market. At the time, there was contemporaneous reporting about fears that the banks were too heavily uh, concentrated in the property market. So why those arguments and that, that discussion did not happen on the night is still a mystery. Simon, we know that Anglo and, and Irish Nationwide effectively were insolvent. But what about the others? AIB, Bank of Ireland, technically speaking, were they insolvent? Well, given where property values went, AIB was certainly in trouble. Um, from a liquidity point of view, 
Uh, would the crisis have caught up with AIB and Bank of Ireland? Yes. I think Anglo, we knew, was hours away from, from, from collapsing. I think nationwide was probably weeks. AIB and Bank of Ireland, weeks as well. Permanent, Irish life and permanent. Um, somewhere in between the two. I think that all the institutions were on a slippery slope uh, and Anglo was the, the, the one in, in the greatest uh, emergency at the time. With regard to the loan books, I don't think the banks themselves jumped to those what-if scenarios. What if the property market halves and uh, the values half in uh, a very short period of time, which they did? No one ran through those scenarios as to what that would mean and how much uh, the losses would would be if they fell as they would, uh, given the guarantee was in place on the taxpayer. So when was the decision made? When did Brian Cowan actually press the button on the blanket guarantee? I think the decision was pretty much made early on in the night. I think they were still ruminating over whether there was... Uh, possibly there was still talk that there would be nationalisation in around midnight. But I think it was clear they were going one direction. I think there was what was described to me as a palpable sense of relief expressed when the banks were asked, AIB and Bank Ireland were brought in, uh, in and around midnight. They were brought in and asked, can you provide any liquidity support to Anglo to tide them over? And I think the sense was that this guarantee may not work. We may need to nationalise Anglo, but we're not going to do it on a Monday night or early Tuesday morning because there's just not enough time. So they asked the banks, well, what can you help us out with? And they asked uh, both banks for five billion. The the banks uh, each went away independently. They contacted their treasury teams in separate rooms in government buildings and they came back and said, yep, we can provide it. We can each provide five billion. And there was that sense of relief on the government side of the table and the regulatory side of the table that, yeah, this is going to be the funding that we need should the guarantee not work to get us to the weekend and maybe consider a bigger uh, decision like the nationalisation of the bank. And yet when the two banks left government buildings, they both had different ideas in their heads as to uh, the structure of this guarantee and how it was going to work. Why was that? Yeah, it's a peculiar outcome from all of the testimony that we heard at the banking inquiry. AIB left government buildings thinking there was going to be a four-bank guarantee and uh, Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Nationwide would be treated differently. Bank of Ireland left with the view that there was a six-bank guarantee. I think the confusion arises by the fact that once there was the initial presentation and there were later meetings with the banks, the banks went off into their separate rooms. They didn't go back into the same room. Uh, And so they spoke to them amongst themselves. They dealt with their own treasury teams to find out that they could get this money to Anglo the next morning um, um, as they expected would happen. AIB left thinking, well, if the government has asked ourselves and Bank of Ireland for five billion each, 10 billion together to give to Anglo, well, if they've asked for that, then they mustn't be guaranteeing Anglo. So they're going to treat it separately. So that led to that interpretation uh, that that Anglo is going to be treated differently. And Bank of Ireland, um, from their point of view, said, well, I don't know how anyone would be left with the view that there wasn't anything but a six-bank guarantee. Um, And AIB said the first they learned that there was going to be a six-bank guarantee was when they heard the first news reports. And the announcement was made publicly to the market and in the media at around 6.45am. In the words of Minister for Finance, Brian Lenehan, it was time for action, swift and decisive. The government today responded to the deepening crisis in the global financial system with an unprecedented state guarantee for the country's banks. The result? Taxpayers are now responsible for bank liabilities totaling 400 billion euro. So I was surprised at the extent of it. 440 billion was huge. And really that left me with the impression that they weren't, they didn't expect this to be called. They expected it as something that would tide them over for a period of time and maybe use it as cover to do something else. I remember the next day somebody describing it to me, one of the bankers describing it to me as after 9-11, airplanes couldn't get insurance to fly. So that required governments to step in. And they described it as something like that, which would suggest that they didn't think that it was anything 
really to worry about longer term or in the medium term. It was just something to get people through a particular period. And as we found out, so much more emerged in the banks that led to much, much bigger decisions and ultimately putting massive pressure on the sovereign, as Merrill Lynch predicted, as one of the disadvantages. So we made the decision. What was the impact on the banks the following day or the day of the announcement? It was positive. You saw um, you saw banks bringing in deposits and uh, we certainly picked up that the next day and for the days after that there was money coming in. I think there were some pretty ill-advised comments made by Brian Lenehan when he had said, uh, I think it was about two weeks or 10 days after the guarantee that it was the cheapest bailout in the world so far, he made the point. Now that came back to bite him and the ramifications of guaranteeing the banks really hadn't been worked through by officials after this big decision. I think it was basically a sense of euphoria that the crisis seemed to have stopped. Maybe let's talk about the legacy because we know it was only a finger in the dike exercise. It didn't uh, It didn't stop the floodwaters from uh, pouring through and uh, much worse was to come for the Irish banks uh, and indeed for the Irish taxpayer in terms of uh, bailing them out. What was the final cost to the state of bailing out our banking system? The upfront cost of pumping capital in, public money in to uh, covering the losses was 64 billion. Now, the net cost is coming in at anywhere between 30 and 35 billion. We don't have the exact figure yet. That's because we still have a shareholding in three of the banks. Yeah, so the three living banks, AIB, Bank of Ireland and Permanent, Permanent TSB, and as you said, AIB includes EBS now, uh, the, sh- the, the shareholding in those banks is worth in the order of about 30 billion is what we're looking at at the moment. And What's gone largely is the money that was pumped into Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Nationwide, and that was almost 35 billion. Uh, I think when you look at what NAMA might get back, they're talking about a three and a half billion euro um, profit from NAMA, uh, and that um, that will go towards reducing the cost of um, Anglo and Irish Nationwide. So you're talking in around 31, 32 billion, somewhere 30 to 35 billion is probably 30, the best. 30 plus anyway. Yeah. yeah. And of course, it's impacted on the country in so many different ways because our national debt spiralled. Uh, we're still paying paying uh, for that uh, in interest costs and other ways. And it led to a round of austerity measures that uh, forced us into a bailout from the IMF and uh, the European Union. Uh, we had rounds of austerity measures, uh, pay cuts uh, and all sorts. And a lot of people still living w- with that today in terms of maybe their mortgages. Absolutely. The, the, the net cost really is, is, is not a very fair way of calculating just the carnage caused by uh, what happened in the banks. And I think the point needs to be made is this isn't a crisis that happened on one night in September 2008. This is a crisis that's been building for years and years and years. How are so many people in vitally important positions so ignorant to what was happening in those banks? I, I think the answer to that, and needless to say, we have a few sleepless nights thinking about it in, in the last number of years. But the reason is it, 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 you just believed, um, maybe naively, but you couldn't have done anything about it, it was otherwise, that um, the central bank and then the regulator in the central bank uh, were well on top of these issues. Like, I, I, I have to this was a crisis that was building for years. It just so happened that the crisis manifested itself on that night. Could it happen again? Absolutely it could happen again. I mean, I think that the way the financial world works is it shifts between greed and fear or innovation and prudence. And I think we go from one extreme to the other all the time. You had the build-up of um, the risks that were being taken in 
in the in the run up to the banking crisis, and that was driven by greed or innovation or new types of products, new ways of making money, making more money, lending more, not recognizing that you're building risks by lending more and more money to a smaller. A small group of investors, not having the corporate structures in place, not ensuring that you know exactly what one developer has borrowed from every bank in the system. No one had insight into just the system-wide exposure of some of these developers. And this is stuff that the regulator should have been all over the banks about in the years up to the crisis. And it's incredible that they that they weren't. Um, I think it could happen again. I think the system that is there still really hasn't been worked out. We haven't figured out a European-wide level just how a deposit insurance scheme will work. We haven't. This system is trying to figure out how you would resolve a failed bank, how you would... Would you burn senior bondholders? It would be really interesting exercise to see if a bank collapsed in the morning. Sure, we have the architecture, but it's never been put to use. No, it's never been put to mm-hmm. use. And I think, I think that's the fear. So the fear is still there. The fear is, well, if we... Like they told, uh, the ECB told the Irish government, you can't burn senior bondholders, but senior bondholders need to be paid. And then if you do, uh, if, if you do insist that they're not repaid, what uh, what they're going to charge for their money in the future? Are they going to charge way over the odds? What effect that's going to have on the funding of banks? Is that going to lead to mortgage rates increasing? And I think you see that now. One of the consequences of the crisis is uh, mortgage costs much, much more uh, in Dublin than it does in Brussels. And that's because Ireland is still regarded as high risk. So we're a decade on now from the crash and it's probably still a bit raw for a lot of people uh, because the you know the effects of um, of that night, uh, the impact that it had, uh, or the effects are still being felt, if you like, here. But how do you think in the long term, how do you think uh, history will treat Brian Cowan? I think history will probably treat him as someone who had to make a very, very difficult decision and that he, that he made a decision. Um, I don't think it will be kind to him because... Uh, not so much of the decision on the night, but the decision that he decisions he failed to make as Minister for Finance prior to him becoming Taoiseach. And I think there were some of the decisions that his government could have made many years earlier that would have been helpful uh, and would have maybe prevented him finding him in that crisis point that he was in on the night in September 2008. Um, and I think that we'll look, we should look back at that period more than the night. I think he had a very limited number of options and I think the crisis was building for a very, very long period and he was in charge. And also, I don't think the government should have had a hands-off approach to the central bank and the financial regulator and what they were doing in that 2003 to 2008 period. They should have been all over them when they realised that this was a red-hot property market. Have the banks learned any lessons 10 years on? Culturally, I don't think so. I think the tracker uh, mortgage scandal, which is the biggest overcharging scandal to affect and to involve banks in Ireland, It's coming up on close to a billion in charges and compensation and redress that's been paid out. That that emerged after all of this, after all that's emerged in Years after. Years after, I think is astonishing and shows that, yes, you can have all the new rules you want to force bankers to do something. But ultimately, when this is happening still within the institutions, there's something culturally wrong. It's not a top down. You can change the management. It's a bottom up. And I think that that's going to take a lot longer to figure out what caused that particular crisis. Okay, Simon Carswell, thank you for joining us. Uh, That's it for this week from Inside Business. Uh, My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced the show. Don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. 